Hey Amen. Well, good morning again. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see you here this morning. We exist, GCF exists, to glorify God, and we do that through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. And uh, I was just thinking, even this last week, that gets worked out in a lot of different ways. Uh, and even this last week, we had a uh, new members class at the Central Campus this past weekend. Several of you were there, and that was a sweet time to gather together with all three of our churches and to see how the Lord's moving and working there. And so we're excited about that. Ladies of Grace Night this past week, uh, thank you to all those ladies who served and prepared and uh, spoke and prayed and shared and cleaned up afterwards. And, uh, it, and for those of you ladies who came, I know it was a really sweet time. And it's another example of, of how we're not meant to do life alone. We're meant to do life together in the context of community and a church family where we can learn and grow and be changed. So it, uh, we're, we're seeking to, uh, we see this mission statement being worked out all over in our midst, and, and we ought to rejoice uh, when that happens. One of my goals each and every Sunday here is, as I open up God's Word, is to give you confidence in the Word of God, that little by little, week by week, that as you turn your attention, man, I don't know why it's, <laughs> sorry, that, that you would have Growing confidence in this word, that it is indeed God's word. It is inspired, inerrant, it will never change. You can base your life on it. It is what is true, it is what is sane, it is what is right. And so I pray that as we make our way through here, our series in Mark, that more and more that you would experience and know that this is what is true. You can base your life on this. So I'd encourage you to turn to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 12. We'll be reading verses 1 through 12 for our time together this morning. As you're turning there, I just want to make mention uh, as well that uh, Pastor Paul's coming up on his sabbatical here in May, and so uh, we're thankful for that. For Maybe if you're newer to GCF, it's uh, certainly one of the great blessings of being a vocational pastor. The elders, and by extension you, afford the pastors uh, a month to take a break from some of the specific duties and tasks to read, rest, reflect, and so forth. And uh, so Pastor Paul will be out this uh, month of May, and uh, so be praying for him for all those things, and certainly as uh, he continues to work and pray and gather people for that uh, PCA church plant as well. So, so just know that you won't see him, so make sure you give hugs today uh, for the next four weeks uh, so he'll be able to visit some other churches as well. If you're able to, please stand as I read Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word now, give us humble hearts that we would listen to your counsel, listen to your wisdom for our lives, not, not simply as some good advice, but as your true and inspired and inerrant word to us so that we might know how to live. And I pray, O oh Lord, that Jesus Christ would be exalted. I pray that our hearts would be stirred, that our minds would be challenged, and that you would accomplish your good and perfect work in every heart here this day. Be pleased to do that, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I've always liked chocolate milk. I love chocolate milk, in fact, and so when I'm on vacation or when I'm away from Becky for a few days, I typically buy chocolate milk. I would, I would probably drink it every day if I could, if it actually had like legitimate health benefits. But I really love chocolate milk, which is why in grade five, when a bunch of guys on my school basketball team snuck into the fridge after practice one evening and stole several cartons of chocolate milk and came back and handed them out, I took it and I drank it. And I don't remember thinking too much at that point, it's a long time ago, but, but I'm pretty sure I liked it. And I'm pretty sure I enjoyed it because, as I said, I really love chocolate milk. Now, up to this point in my life, I didn't have a rap sheet. I wasn't in trouble with the law. I didn't have any major sins. I, I don't think there were too many embarrassing moments. I was a church kid. I was a really good church kid. And my parents were really involved in our local church. Dad was a deacon, both mom and dad sang in the choir, we spent a lot of time at church, so I really didn't think drinking one little helping of chocolate milk was such a big deal. I mean, I didn't even hatch the plan. It wasn't my idea. I didn't physically lift all that chocolate milk from the cooler and carry it down and, and put it in the change room. All I did was say yes when it was offered to me. And I, I probably even said thanks. And then I just drank it as quickly as I could. So the next day when three quarters of the basketball team, all of us chocolate milkers, were standing in the principal's office and listening to him rant about how what we did was so unacceptable and it was a poor example to others at school and how there would need to be consequences for our actions, I don't really remember really paying too much attention to him because I was a good kid. I was a church kid. I actually did say please and thank you most of the time. I mean, the principal was clearly talking to my teammates. They didn't go to church like I did. They didn't win sword drills on Sunday morning like I did. It was their plan. They're the criminal masterminds. I was just kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time. So I was still feeling pretty good about myself until later that afternoon when I got home and then, then my dad got home. And then I started to not feel very good. My dad was 
a teacher for many years in the same small city, actually worked at the same school with this principal, so they had a long-standing friendship and relationship, and news like that kind of travels really, really fast. And I don't really remember exactly all the words that my dad said to me, but I do remember having this distinct thought, oh, you are speaking to me. You're, you're, not, you're not talking to anybody else. You, your words, you, you mean what you're saying, and you are speaking directly to me. Now, there are certain passages in the Bible where we read and we tend to think, wow, that's kind of heavy. I don't think Jesus is talking to me. I hope he's not talking. I think he's talking to somebody else. Our text this morning is in that category. This parable from Jesus here in Mark chapter 12 is a rebuke to some very religious people who were very opposed to God. So in one sense, this can be, considered, can be considered part two of the confrontation, part one last week that we learned about with Jesus and the Sanhedrin. Jesus is still in the temple. He's surrounded by these religious elites, the top religious leaders of the time, this ruling Jewish council. These were the who's who, these were the elites. They question him about his authority. He doesn't ignore them, but in fact, he, he rebukes them in the form of this parable. Now, I'm well aware that not every portion of Scripture and not every sermon applies equally to every person. And so, perhaps you are here this morning, and what you need most is actually not a rebuke from Jesus. Praise God. But in a congregation this size, some of you do. Some of you do. And I think most of us are okay if Jesus rebukes worldly people who don't believe in him, who want nothing to do with him. I mean, we think, well, they deserve it. And I think we're also good with Jesus rebuking those who don't care about the widows or they don't have any compassion for the suffering or those who hoard their money or those who don't really care about the world as we do. They don't share our priorities. I think we say, Jesus, by all means, rebuke them. And do you mind if we watch? But what if Jesus is speaking this parable to us, to me, and to you? We'd be really foolish to think that there are not people like the scribes and the priests and the elders among us. We'd be really foolish to think that people like that just sort of disappeared after the first century. So is Jesus speaking this parable to you and to me? To answer that, I simply want to work our way through this story, this parable, and to see that through the lens of the major characters here, the owner, the tenant, and then the son. The owner of the vineyard, I'll read verse 1. This is Jesus. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, Jesus here is using language and, and, and word pictures that are very familiar to people here in this context. If you've ever done any gardening, I know many of you do, well, then you know the kind of work, the kind of hard work and toil and oftentimes grunt work it takes to turn a piece of land into something beautiful, into something productive. I mean, it takes a lot of planning and it takes a lot of work. Now, some of us know the opposite. We know it's not hard to go completely in the other direction, to take something and to see something that is beautiful and productive and to have it uh, 
degrade into just a wild patch of weeds, seemingly overnight. That's where I'm at. But this vineyard, this vineyard is different. I mean, this vineyard has received a great deal of care and attention from the landowner. I mean, the owner clearly knows what he is doing. He's set up his vineyard in a way that it will flourish and it will grow and it will produce pleasing fruit. This, no detail is forgotten. This vineyard has a wall, has a pit, has a wine press, and a watchtower. I mean, the owner has gone to a lot of work, hasn't he? He's invested everything in his vineyard to ensure that it produces pleasing fruit and that it succeeds. Now, presumably, as Jesus is telling this story, and we know this from ancient sources, it would take, this is, this is a new crop, this is a new vineyard, so it would take at least four years for there to be any fruit harvested. So what we also know then is that this owner is absolutely committed long-term to his vineyard, to the health and growth and the flourishing of his vineyard. Can you just picture the, the joy of this landowner as he, he's just set up, he's meticulously planned and cared for his vineyard, and he looks out over it, and he smiles, and he says, this is good. This is, this is good. So the owner does what was very common in those days. He entrusts his vineyard to, to workers to cultivate it, to care for it. He rents out his vineyard in his absence. The workers don't own it. He owns it, but they're simply renting it. Now, even just in this first verse, as Jesus is setting the context here and beginning to tell this story, if, if you're one of those very religious people, Sanhedrin, you're hearing this in the temple, you're thinking, wait a minute, that, he's using words and imagery. Where have I heard something like that before? Where's he going? Is, is he speaking to us? And so you might remember Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and I'll read it for us. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and plants it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. And so you're starting to put the pieces together. Wait a minute. Okay, so God, God's the owner of the vineyard. And the vineyard are, are his own people, his chosen people, Israel. And God did all that was necessary to plant Israel, to provide for her, to protect her so that she could grow and flourish and fulfill her purpose on the earth. God is invested in his vineyard and his people. He did all the work to establish his people. He, we could say he took all the risks while his people served him and bore fruit. And there would be no better place on earth to live than in God's vineyard. As his chosen people, Israel, bore the fruit of righteousness, God was glorified, and everyone was blessed, as long or so long as the tenants remained faithful. But actually, that's not what happened, not even close. And so Jesus continues the story with zeroing in, really, on the tenants. This is verses 2 through 5. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Now, I want you to notice there in verse 2 
that the owner of the vineyard sends his servants to get some of the fruit, some of the crop, to bring it back to him. That is not unfair. That is not unreasonable that the owner is entitled to a portion of the harvest. In fact, he owns it all. It's all, everything belongs to him. He owns the whole vineyard. The owner could ask for everything, but no, he just asks for a portion. It's not an unreasonable demand. It's certainly not an unreasonable request. Yet perhaps some of you are here this morning and you seriously doubt and wonder whether God could demand anything of you. You wonder if he could make that big ask of you. You might think, you know, well, my idea of God is, is a little bit different. I think he's there when I run into trouble. I think he's there when I really need some help. But he pretty much just let me li- live, live my life. He's not going to intrude so much. So functionally in everyday life, we can go about our lives thinking, well, no, everything I have, it, it actually belongs to me. It's ours. It's not his. It's my stuff. It's my money. It's my possessions. It's my job. It's my career. It's all mine. You know, my and mine. And we hear those words from a very early age, don't we? Those are some of the more rebellious words that we can ever speak. As an example, it's, it's my money. I've studied hard. I put in the work. I got good grades, went to a great school, landed a great job. I've saved wisely. So yeah, I, I get to really determine what to do with My money. Well, every one of us in this room, brothers and sisters, has way more money than any of us actually deserve. I don't know why God has chosen to bless this country with so much wealth, to bless this country with so many more opportunities to generate even more wealth. But what I do know is that none of us deserve it. We don't deserve it any more than that poor rice farmer in Cambodia. And what I do know is that we're not supposed to hoard it. Everything belongs to God. Everything, our families, our possessions, our kids, our friendships, our marriages, our singleness, our personalities. And so God owns all of us, which means that he actually has the right to expect pleasing fruit from our lives. God expects his vineyard to bear fruit for his glory. He expected this of Adam and Eve in Genesis 1:26. This is, again, pre-fall, before the entrance of sin. Be fruitful, multiply. He expected this of his people, Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 and 8. And he certainly expects that from his new covenant people. Read about that in John chapter 15. So here's the first question for you. Do you actually believe that? Do you actually believe that God has rights? over you? Do I actually believe that God has rights over my life? Do we actually believe that He can give and He can take away? And blessed be the name of the Lord. If you say no, then you're not a Christian. If you say yes, then everything you have belongs to God. It's it's His vineyard. He can do with you and me what he wants, and he has the right and authority to ask anything of us. Now, at this point, this parable gets very, very dark, very, very fast because of the actions of the tenants. In fact, in these next few verses, verses 2, 3, all the way to 5, you actually get a pretty good summary of the entire Old Testament right here. 
Those entrusted with producing pleasing fruit for the owner, they defy the owner. And in some cases, they murder his servants. It's not the way it's supposed to be. The first servant is beaten. That word there really means to skin or to flay. It's, it's actually it's brutal. It's grotesque. The second servant is hit in the head, evidently placed in concussion protocol, treated shamefully. The third servant is killed, and this whole scene is repeated. The owner sends his servants. The tenants either beat them or mercilessly kill them outright. But the landowner is relentless. He keeps sending servant after servant after servant, and the evil tenants are relentless in continuing to uh, ruin their lives, even taking their lives. Despite all that the owner has done to set up his vineyard in the way that he wants, his tenants do not respond out of gratitude, nor do they honor their commitments. There is, in fact, flat-out rebellion against the owner and against his messengers. Now, I think we have the benefit here, don't we, of the whole corpus of Scripture, and we understand, and we go to a good gospel-centered church where already the, the wheels are turning. I think the wheels are turning for some of you, and you're starting to put some of the pieces together here. And so we understand then that this is the history it's the history of the Old Testament. I mean, the servants represent the prophets of God, the very messengers of God that God graciously sent to his people. And so Jesus is saying, hey, you Sanhedrin, very religious people, I actually am speaking to you. This is your history, Israel. You have a long history of abusing prophets and messengers of God sent to you by God himself. And the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 7, the words will be up here, verses 25 and 27, really summarizes the Old Testament here. Let me read it for us. From that day your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day. I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. That's not exactly a glowing endorsement, is it? I mean, this is, we talk about church history, we talk about a family history. I mean, it's hard to get more shady, sinful, and horrific here than, than that, than, than what we read here in the pages of the Old Testament. Many of the prophets were killed. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Amos. The most recent prophet, prophet that was sent and subsequently killed was, in fact, John the Baptist. And Jesus had just talked about him. He had just mentioned him in real time, like 35 seconds ago, to the Sanhedrin. And so what Jesus is saying here, brothers and sisters, is that to these religious leaders, that they stood in a long line of people whose history was marred by rebellion after rebellion after rebellion against God. They stood in a long line of people who refused to listen to God, who refused to listen to his servants, to his messengers that he had sent to them. Is Jesus speaking this parable to you? And you still refuse to listen to him. Is that where you're at this morning? I mean, what does your recent history, what does that tell you? We, we follow in that same tragic tradition, prone to wander, 
Lord, I do feel that. Prone to leave the God I love. I mean, what is your recent history? What does this last week tell you? What does the last month tell you? Some of you may be a good church kid like I was, or perhaps you're now a good church adult. You've grown out of that. But if you're a church kid here, probably great parents, maybe go to school, maybe go to Christian school. You know the gospel. You, get, you got the right answers, but your parents really still have no idea who you really are. Nobody knows except for you how easy it is for you just to go through the motions and to fake it. Maybe you're here this morning and you're just angry with God. Or you're, you're so angry that it's just apathetic. You don't even care anymore. Or perhaps you're just running from him. And, and, and in running from him, you're running from those that God has sent because he loves you, to, but you don't listen to them either. Are people telling you the truth, but you still refuse to listen? Do you really have a history of listening to God, listening so that you would obey, so that, yes, you would produce pleasing fruit? Is this parable for you? Well, the third major character in this parable is the son, verses 6 through 8. I'll read this. He still had one other. A beloved son, finally he sent to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, I can imagine at this point in this story, the Sanhedrin are kind of shuffling their feet a little bit, starting to get a little warmer, maybe nervously looking around. Is this about the chocolate milk? Is, is he speaking to us? The owner has one last plan, to send his own son to collect the harvest, to collect the fruit. In fact, the owner will send his own son to do what nobody else could do. But we learn very quickly that the fate of his son is sealed. The evil tenants kill him. They treat his dead body with such contempt that the son is just thrown out of the vineyards. The, the tenant doesn't even give the body the dignity of a proper burial. And commentators agree that at this point, Jesus is indeed speaking about himself. Jesus knows that he is the son in this parable who will, in just a matter of a few days, be scorned, be rejected, be ridiculed, ultimately be crucified for some very religious people who were very opposed to him and still refused to listen to him. I think we read this, and there's an inevitable question that, that we're confronted with. What kind of father would risk sending his own son to rebels after how they treated his previous messengers? And that is exactly the point. God is that kind of father. God is that kind of owner. God sent his own son at the risk of a son's life. In fact, God didn't just send his own son at the risk of his son's life. God sent his own son at the cost of his son's life. God does not give up on his people. What great patience. What great compassion. What great love God has 
for his people, for his vineyard. That he would go to such great lengths to rescue and to redeem. He could not do anything more. He could not display his love in any other way. God really loves his people. That means he really loves you. Danny, God really loves you. He really does. Kara, he has put his steadfast love on you. He loves you. There's so many people to choose from here. <laughs> All of you who know Jesus. God loves you, Isaac. He really loves you. God loves his people. Can you hear the, the echoes of the gospel in this passage? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 1 John 4, 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. In other words, how do we know that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him and the very next verse, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means that, that he would remove the wrath from us, the real removal of God's holy wrath. And God the Father loves his people. He loves his vineyard. vineyard. He loves his church with a never-ending, always-rescuing, unrelenting love. Don't ever, ever forget that. Remind each other of that. And this morning he continues to draw you in with his never-ending, always-rescuing, unrelenting love. And he does that knowing exactly who you and me are. He knows your recent history. He knows all of your sins. He knows your past history. He knows what you hope would be ancient history. He knows all of that, your sins, your failures, the shame, the guilt, the regret, the tears, and he comes near to you, and he says, I've sent my son. I've sent my son for you. I'm not going to let you go. Not then, not now, not ever. So in the words of Jack Miller, said this before, cheer up. You are a far worse sinner than you ever dared imagine but you are more deeply loved by God than you ever dared hope. The only lingering question that really remains in the story is the one we read in verse nine. What will the owner do? What will the owner do? His own son has just been brutally killed. If I'm that father, I know what my initial inclination would be. And I'm sure yours would be the same too. We do know the response of some very religious people, the Sanhedrin, verse 12, they were looking for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd for they knew that he had spoken this parable against him. And so the Sanhedrin are thinking, ooh, this is about chocolate milk. He is speaking to us. He's, he's talking to us. But sadly, this parable had 
zero effect on these very religious people. In fact, they left and eventually they began to hatch a plan which ultimately led to the brutal crucifixion of Jesus. They remained opposed to him and to the truth. Well, what does the owner, what does God do? Verse 9, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. He will come and destroy the tenants. He will come and judge them and kill those who rebel against him. Now, some of you here this morning might recoil at what I just said and at what you're reading here. I don't want to worship that kind of God, a vengeful God, a God who destroys people. Give me the God of the New Testament. I don't, that must be the, the Old Testament God. How about the New Testament Jesus who is compassionate and meek and mild? Okay, let me give you the New Testament Jesus. This is actually the New Testament Jesus who is saying that. I don't know if in your Bible, but in mine, there's a lot of red in this text, and it's just a helpful hint to remember that those are the words of Jesus. That is what Jesus is saying. This is the Jesus that you want. This is the Jesus that's saying that. So to put it as simply as I can, to reject Jesus is in fact to choose judgment. And that is a horrible thing. To reject Jesus is to choose the righteous and holy judgment, the very wrath of God against you. But there is, I think, a stunning twist to this story, to this parable. Jesus says he will come and destroy those tenants, and notice, and give the vineyard to others. There's going to be new tenants, new beneficiaries of his care. Jesus speaking there of Gentiles, that God would do a work as the gospel goes out and spreads, that he would put his spirit in their hearts from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, and that they would be able to respond in obedience from the heart and not in any outward way, and that they would work, he would work with humble people who obey his word. He's talking about us. He's talking about Gentiles. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 118, which is a passage that the Sanhedrin should have known but didn't care to really know. I'll read verses 10 and 11. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? Jesus says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in his eyes. The cornerstone or the, or the capstone was the very last stone that was put in place in the whole building, and it held the whole building together. You don't really have a building. Everything crumbles without that stone. And Jesus is claiming to be the indispensable and central element in God's dwelling place. He is the new temple. He would be the one who would ensure that God's vineyard remains God's vineyard. Jesus, the beloved son, would die to secure what rightfully belonged to God the Father, his people. And even though these very powerfully connected, very religious people opposed Jesus every step of the way, all the way to the cross, Jesus would be victorious in the end. The stone rejected ends up becoming the most important of all. So even in the death of Jesus, that accomplished God's holy and wise purposes. God, in fact, would use his own son's death to bring glory to himself and to rescue and redeem his people. 
I mean, we, we got to just understand, and I really hope that you can understand, how bold, how in your face what Jesus just says here to some very religious people. He just told some very, very powerful people and some very connected people, you don't get to steal my people. You don't get to steal my treasured possession. Back off. You don't get to steal my church. Yes. Go, Jesus. And so this story actually ends with a great deal of hope. If you belong to God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, because if that's the case, if you have put your trust in the son who gave up his life for you, then you belong in God's vineyard. That's what God has planned for you. He he will provide for you and protect you. There's no better place to live than in his vineyard with God as your heavenly father. And we begin to understand that the only way that any of us sinners who have rebelled, doesn't matter if we've just sinned once or a thousand times or innumerable times, We all have a lot in common with these wicked, evil tenants. The only way that any of us get into the vineyard is not because we're good church people, because we grew up in church, because we're moral enough, because we've tried to rectify the past wrongs and we work really hard and to get over the regret. No, it's because of God's great grace. It's a gift to live in God's vineyard. It's a gift to have God as your heavenly Father And it's a gift of his grace because of his never-ending, unrelenting, always rescuing love. So it's possible, as we are saying here, it's possible to be very, very religious, to do a lot of religious things, to be busy with a lot of different religious activities and still be opposed to God and still be in direct opposition to God. And so if that is you this morning, there are two warnings that I plead with you to heed. If this parable really is for you, first, Jesus is nearer than you think. Jesus is nearer than you think. The assumption from these wicked tenants was that God is sort of this absentee owner. He's nowhere on the scene. He's not really going to care what happens in his vineyard. We can do whatever we want. He's not going to intervene. Well, you would be foolish to live even one second of one day thinking that God doesn't care about his vineyard and that he won't ever act. He will draw near, and he will judge. So if you're actively rebelling against Jesus this morning, don't think that he will wink at your transgressions. Don't think that he will ignore your sins. He won't. Don't think that it doesn't matter what your search history on your computer reads or the bitterness you hide in your heart to a spouse or a child or a boss or a friend. Turn from your sins. Repent fall on your knees, throw yourself down at the mercy and grace of Christ. Jesus is nearer than you think, and yes, he is speaking to you. He is still speaking to you, and today is yet another opportunity in his kindness for you to turn to him. He's giving you another opportunity because he loves you. He is still speaking today. I can't think of anything else in this world, frankly, that would be any worse than should Jesus hide his face from you to stop speaking and to be silent. But he still is. 
day after day, week after week, through his word and by his spirit. He's nearer than you think. Second, you cannot get rid of Jesus. You cannot get rid of Jesus. It's what the evil tenants tried to do. Refused to listen to the son. It's what the Sanhedrin, very religious people, tried to get rid of him. You can deny him. Yes, you can reject him. Yes, you can malign him. Yes, you can ignore him. You can even kill him, but you still can't get rid of him. That's already been tried and failed. I mean, Jesus hung on the cross, and many assumed that he had failed. Finally, this religious wingnut, this troublemaker, we can get away with him because there's the body, boop, in the grave. And here we are, 2,000 years plus years later, and, and the opponents and detractors are still continuing to take their best shot at Jesus, and guess what? You can't get rid of him. Praise God <laughs> that nobody can get rid of Jesus. Our faith rests on that certainty. It rests on that. And so as dark and cloudy and murky, yes, as the waters of this world are, sometimes becoming more so, you simply cannot get rid of the eternal Son of God. Now, some of you here are saying, well, I don't really want to get rid of Jesus. I prefer he keep a safe distance. But perhaps you've been involved in a very long tug of war with Jesus. So you don't want to get rid of him, but you're just, you're just at war with him. It is not going to turn out well for you in the end. Jesus is speaking to you this morning. He's not screaming at you. He loves you. He is pleading with you to stop running. Stop running away from him and run to him. You may be a really good church kid like I was. You may be a really good church parent. You may be a really good church adult. But you know what? You can spend your whole life actually running away from him and spurning the grace of the gospel. And guess what? He will still be God and you will still have to give an account at the end of your life. So, is this parable for you? Is Jesus speaking to you? I mean, you can choose to hate him. You can think this was the worst sermon you've ever heard. You can refuse to listen. But if you don't want to hear warnings, your problem actually is with Jesus and it's with his word. But perhaps you hear this rebuke and you hear this warning and you say, Jesus, you are speaking to me. I, I am listening. I, I was that evil tenant and there's a time in my life where I was in flat out rebellion against you, but but I know that you sent your son to rescue me and now you've given me life in your vineyard with a whole lot of other people for whom you've done the very same thing and together with the saints then what can we do except to say salvation is of the Lord's doing and it is marvelous. It is marvelous in our eyes. What can we do except to say Jesus, you you are marvelous in our eyes. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, thank you for your unrelenting, never-ending, always-rescuing love. We don't deserve you, but in your kind compassion and grace you have seen fit to do for us what we could never do ourselves. 
Thank you for this great salvation that so many of us enjoy. And I pray, Lord, if there is anyone here who, for whatever reason, has not turned and repented of their sins and trusted in you and that, that perhaps today would be their day of salvation, that today they would leave knowing and experiencing your great love and have a sense for what life looks like in your vineyard. God, have mercy on every person here, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, perhaps you're here this morning and you want to be honest before the Lord. This is a good time and a good place to do that. And perhaps your recent history is full of sin. Well, you're not alone. That's our story, whether the last 24 hours or the last week. You've already condemned yourself, and maybe others have as well. You know you don't measure up. All that is true. Even on our best days, brothers and sisters, we, we don't measure up. I mean, the, the bar is set very high. The bar is perfection. Only one man, Jesus Christ, the Son, the living God, could fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law, every last one of them. But when you put your faith in Christ, you are then found righteous. You are then clothed with his righteousness and not your own. So Jack Miller, he's right. Cheer up. We really are far worse sinners than we usually think. But the gospel is far greater news, and there's far much more grace in it than we oftentimes realize. So communion is a celebration for the redeemed of God. Not for perfect people, not for good church people, but for people who have said, you know what, I, I can't save myself. I'm trusting in the righteousness of Jesus the Son, and I'm endeavoring to live faithfully in his vineyard. That's, that's the good news of the gospel. And if, if you're here this morning and you're not sure what to think and perhaps... You're, the earth is shaking a little bit. Well, I'm really glad you're here. We'd love to talk with you about how you can know this Jesus in a very personal way, how you can leave here changed. But please re refrain from receiving communion. And we'd love to talk with you more.